0: You're listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is episode seven of ABS in Mind and I'm your host Diana Satyan. As always, we have a great lineup prepared for you today, so let's get started. First, we have Zhu Wang, FinTech reporter from Deadwire's sister publication, Murder Market. Nizu, what's on your mind?
1: Hi everyone. I cover MA side as a FinTech business at Merger Market based in New York City. Um, today I invited Dee Sherwat, Director at Rosenblatt Securities FinTech Investment Banking Group, to help us unbundle this issue. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dee. It's a pleasure to
0: be here. Great. Thank you. Next we have Al Yoon, assistant editor and RMBS reporter at Deadwire ABS. Al, what's on your mind?
2: Well, I just uh, returned last, uh, last week from the uh, first ever uh, IMN conference on the residential non-QM lending space, and uh, I'm going to give you some updates and you know, a little bit uh, color about what I heard there, and we'll also have Perry Rabar from uh, DV01 to uh, give us some views as well. He was apparently out there, too, although we missed each other. So.
0: <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you. All right. Well, before we turn it to you, Yuju, I wanted to touch on why we're even talking about equity, your coverage area, on a Debt Wire podcast. Debt and equity are closely correlated in the fintech and online lending sector. Many of the firms that operate in the space are still not profitable and are cash negative, and some debt investors prefer them this way. In fact, I was at the ABS tech conference yesterday, where a head of a pretty large fintech debt fund talked about their strategy of investing in cash negative startups, because those companies typically offer an equity piece to go with that debt investment. And you really can only get these type of deals with early stage cash negative companies. But on the other hand, there's a fair amount of risk involved in providing debt to a company, which frankly depends on its equity providers to be a going concern. How do you make sure they will be able to raise their next funding round before they run out of cash? Investors at the event yesterday didn't have an answer for this either, aside from do your due diligence and invest in teams with experienced operators. We have reported on our end about several companies that have had a hard time uh, raising equity cop- capital recently and had to go through drastic uh, cuts like the auto leasing FinTech Fair or the home equity investment platform Unison others have had to have their debt investors actually step in and lead the equity funding rounds for them. With where we are in the economic cycle, coupled with the post-WeWork scaries, equity investors seem to be pausing on aggressive deals. In fact, according to CB Insights, the third quarter 2019 FinTech funding uh, volume topped $8.9 billion, up 6% from the second quarter 2019 but those numbers are down every single quarter in 2019 when you compare them with the 2018 numbers as a result of a continued pullback in early-stage investing. So Yuju, with all of that said, what are you seeing from your equity sources?
1: Yeah, that's great observation from you on the debt side. Um, on my side, I cover um, equity investment and m in the fintech market since early 2017, and I can definitely see that um, things are moving very fast. Uh, there are several um, companies that I've spoken with in 2017 at that time, they were raising their Series A um, stage of funding, uh, and many were just launched their product at that time. But now, just recently, when I um, check back with them, they have been making headlines about getting a unicorn valuation and with many great achievements. Um, so what's interesting about FinTech is that it's sitting in the intersection of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Um, so for typical Silicon Valley um companies, they tend to raise equity rounds uh, uh, periodically uh, to fund the most recent development. Um, So, uh, and also, uh, from my observation, fintech has definitely been a buzzword in the MA market. Uh, if you can tag yourself as a fintech, you can definitely expect like very high multiple in terms of EBITDA or revenue. Uh, and many of the firms, when they were exploring the sale, they probably just broke even and can still fetch really um, high valuation. So here I brought up D. D at Rosenblood. Securities just did a survey uh, around this uh, the most recent trend in the equity investment in fintech. Um, Dee, um, could you tell us a little bit about your role at Rosenblood and what's the context of the survey?
3: Great, thank you. Sir. So um, Rosenblatt Securities is uh, a broker-dealer on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I'm part of my investment banking business and our task is to raise capital on behalf of Uh, tech entrepreneurs, as well as help with M&A and IPO activity. Uh, So we've got a year to the ground, and uh, we'd like to think we are uh, very in touch with investor sentiment in the market, and uh, the numbers, like you were saying, uh, continue to, I think, look pretty okay in terms of both uh, M&A as well as fundraising, but as it happens in the private market, the numbers sometimes are not a good indicator of what's to come in the future. And I think on the back of the uh, softness in the IPO market, in the general IPO market, so, you know, a couple of the large uh, IPOs that have, gone, that have happened this year that haven't d- done very well, uh, like Uber and Lyft, as, as, as others like we work in AB&B that have been pushed back, we are uh, expecting to see maybe a knock-on effect of those, uh, of the private market as well. Broadly, the all, all private unicorns and then maybe a knock on effect on the fintech market. The survey that we did a month ago of large and small investors uh, that are all in the fintech space was not about asking the question that, you know, when we expect uh, a downturn to happen in private fintech funding, um, not the timing or the probability, but instead it was simply asking as, as prudent participants in the market and as advisors to fintech companies, to at least ask the question that if there was a downturn a slowdown in the private fintech market what can we expect what investors see how they might respond to a softness in the fintech private market so the questions we asked were more around um, you know how much do you think uh, the impact might be on on fintechs in terms of valuations? what part of the cap table would be impacted the most What types of fintech companies we break up the the fintech universe into, uh, payments, lending, investments, and insurance. What part of the sectors might be impacted the most, and that which could actually fare well. Uh, So those are some of the questions that we asked investors and happy to discuss what our high level uh, highlights were and observations were from the survey. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. Yes. Um, So what have you found from the survey? Would you mind giving us some highlights from this investor survey? Yeah, so let me share some
3: of the findings that that we had. Let me share sort of five of them. Uh, So the first question that sort of our first set of questions we asked investors were uh, what do you think might trigger uh, a slowdown in uh, private investments in fintech? And the response we got from investors was that there would be no clear, you know, trigger to a slowdown, but a gradual change in the narrative about the attractiveness of private investments that eventually causes a slowdown in the private market. And you could argue that maybe there are already some indications of that happening. Uh, there is a little bit of uh, you know, aggressive questioning uh, by investors for uh, putting money into Fintechs that whereas uh, you know 12 months ago the marketing power was very squarely in the hands of the Fintech entrepreneur. And now uh, I think uh, Bendle has swung a little bit back on the investor side. Uh, still not completely on the investor side, but clearly investors have a little bit more bargaining power, power than they had 12 months ago. Uh, so the first point was that we know that triggered was slowed down, but a gradual change in the narrative. Um, the second observation that we had was that we asked people um, what part of the fintech cap table might be impacted the most in terms of valuation uh, contraction. Uh, which basically means that if they're private fintech companies in early, mid to the unicorn stage, you know, early being people that are in the series A to B round, uh, middle stage would be people that are, you know, in the process of raising C to E rounds, and then fintech unicorns obviously being private fintech companies valued more than a billion dollars. And uh, about 65% of the investors responded saying that uh, the unicorns, uh, so fintech companies, uh, with the 58 of them uh, as of yesterday worldwide, uh, with more than a billion dollars in market cap, would be impacted the most. And uh, second was uh, the early stage companies, Series A to B round companies would be impacted the second, and the mid stage companies are will probably fare fare the best. So think of that as a barbell approach where the opposite ends of the barbell, that the early stage companies and unicorn companies would be would face the most valuation contraction and mid-stage companies would actually fare the best. Um, we estimate that, you know, if there was a downturn and if the unicorns got impacted then investors are saying they 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 would. Uh, Then the 58 unicorns out there, you know, the total amount of uh, contraction in the market capitalization of the unicorns might be anywhere over, you know, $50 billion. Uh, And the argument there is sort of to square those numbers, obviously there are a couple of anomalies, like, um, you know, um, Stripe, for example, is is the largest uh, private fintech company. So, in fact, you know, they have a massive valuation that skews the numbers a lot. But a 20% drop is what investors, uh, you know, said that the large fintech unicorns could be impacted by. Third very quick observation was we asked people, what sectors in financial services would actually face the greatest amount of pressure? And probably no surprise, people said lending, all the lending players, private lending firms, would actually suffer the greatest drop. Um, And the least impacted would be the payments guys. That kind of makes sense because uh, you would expect in you know, a private market contraction, lending uh, is more susceptible than payments. Payments is obviously a transaction-driven business and uh, what payments would actually you know be least impacted. And then capital markets and insurance would be somewhere between lending and payments. Uh, fourth quick observation was that we asked investors, what are your top two concerns? What are you concerned about most? In a slowdown in the private fintech market, and the top two concerns for for investors were, uh, one, um, it would make raising new funds difficult for firms, um, and second was for investors was that their the investments that they considered their winning investments will you know suffer collateral damage as overall the market was suffering. Let me explain what that means. So winning investments basically means that in the venture capital business, you are usually depending upon you know the top two or three, uh, or if you're lucky, four or five of your portfolio companies that are carrying the weight of all the other portfolio companies that either go bankrupt or are not doing very well. So you're depending upon a few winners to carry your entire portfolio. But in a down market or, or a slowdown, your winning investments, even the best alternative lending player or, or advisor or a challenger bank might also get impacted and pulled down because the overall market tends to be slowing down. So, you know, the argument, the analogy there being, you know, when the tide goes up, all boats come down, right? Not only not really, not really large boats, small boats, everybody sort of tends to come down. Mm-hmm. Fifth observation was that we asked people um, that what would you invest, what would the sentiment be for you as an investor if there was a downturn, and this is very surprising, where over half the investors we surveyed said they'd actually be opportunistic and eager to actually go out and invest in in fintech if the valuations dropped and business slowed down. And in fact, a lot of the investors said they're actually readying their shopping lists to go out shopping if the market actually slowed down. And uh, that seems a little high to us, 55% of investors, because obviously you've got to have, if if, if more than half the investors are saying they were, they are active buyers, then you would expect, that some, somebody needs to be selling. So we, you know, I think the market's being a little too optimistic, uh, but it's a good sign that investors feel like they're not just gonna hunker down and, and ride out the storm, but they'd be active to go out there and acquire companies and invest in companies. Uh, if the valuations uh, dropped, particularly in very frothy areas like retail banking, where valuations have been on a tear over the last few years. So those are some some high-level findings uh, from the survey, Mm -hmm. and uh, we have a webinar on December 3rd uh, that's open to everybody to listen in for their uh, analysis on, on changing or shifting market conditions in fintech.
1: Thank you very much for the thorough explanation. It's very helpful. Just curious about um, an interesting color you want to share uh, when you're conducting a survey, when you talk to investors on this topic, what is the general sentiment you get from them?
3: Yeah, sure. So like I was saying, the investor sentiment is, uh, you know, I think uh, over, over, overall the investor sentiment is, I'd say, twofold. One is uh, they all believe that as long as the music is playing, they need to keep dancing. Which means, <laughs> as there are, you know, they continue to be entrepreneurs looking for capital and other investors eager to invest. They cannot withdraw and hold the powder dry. They need to be very active in the market as well, you know, looking at deal flow and continue to make investments. So, so right now, when things are still looking okay, they are pretty actively investing. But very quickly, they will say, on the other hand, they are being a little careful because we are in the tenth year of uh, a private uh, market up market. So we could be we could be at an inflection point of uh, the market cycle changing or shifting, and I think people are beginning to be a little skeptical and careful. Um, you know, some may be cynical, but mostly just saying you know a little bit more conservative than we were 12 months ago, and then preparing for a slowdown. Like I said, over half the investors saying to would be opportunistic and would we'll actually go out there and make investments they would be eager investors if the valuations became a little attractive in you know, a slowdown, particularly in frothy areas of the market where valuations have been pretty high and a lot of investors have felt like, you know, things are priced way too much and well above fair value, uh, and that's just particularly in the mid to late stages of fintech growth. I think in those areas where people are very valuation sensitive, uh, the investors are saying that uh, you know if the valuation came down 15 percent 20%, for example, in the lending space, uh, they might be eager to get in and, and make some investments. So that's kind of what we heard and uh, have seen through our survey, as well as our regular sort of check-ins with investors and what investor sentiment is. Got
0: it. Thank you. It's uh, fascinating, actually. It's uh, for for me, especially. I think that hearing that lending is uh, the one area of fintech that's like most concerning to investors is definitely of interest. We're seeing on the debt side too, investors get a little cautious, but a lot of them are also saying, you know, the, the recession won't be consumer led, but still, the earlier stage uh, lending firms are 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 not, let's say, are raising a little more questions these days. The thank you. And usually, thank you both so much. Switch to uh, non-QM now. Al, can you start okay. us off, please?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, non-QM and uh, all the companies involved there, I suppose, could be considered fintech, too. Sure. Or, <laughs> they're in the financial sector, and they do use technology. So, <laughs> I mean, everything is the same, I suppose. But uh, anyway, hello, Perry. Um, I'm sorry I missed you at the conference, but uh, let's catch up now. So we both just returned from this conference, and uh, to, to me, uh, you know, the message is everybody was pretty much all bowled up out there. You know, volumes are up, delinquencies are low, uh, the rates, chart, the rates uh, to the borrower are higher than uh, conforming markets, so what's not to like? That was the, the general message that people were trying to sell out there, I thought. But um, first, uh, Perry, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about your involvement in, in non-QM.
4: Yeah. So, um, you know, we we start. I started the company five years ago. Um, it specifically focused on online lending, mostly in the consumer and student loan space. So, what we what we envisioned when we started the company was building a new data reporting and analytics infrastructure for the market, both issuers and investors, from the ground up. Uh, really focusing on data tools to to make it really easy to understand how the data is performing, how loans are performing, making it easy to look at. Um, you know, Lending Club versus SoFi, whatever kind of combination or cohorting you wanted to do, and, and really understand performance well. Uh, and then a, a big, a big focus of ours has been making securitization super transparent as well. So, we came up with an offering called the Loan Data Agent, where we're embedded within these transactions, and we make all the loan-level data easily accessible to investors with the reporting and analytical tools uh, on top of it. And so. About a year and a half ago, um, you know, we've done a lot in consumer. We've been in over 250 transactions. We started focusing on the mortgage market, and mm-hmm. um, you know, we got into our first mortgage deal uh, in March of last year as a reperforming loan deal. Um, and then in November of last year, we got into our first non-QM deal. And since then, we've been super focused in, uh, you know, partnering with other issuers. So uh, NRZ was our first partner. Okay. And we got into Wamco transactions, Angelo Gordon, Oaktree. Um, and we have a few others. We recently uploaded some Blackstone deals. And we're working with a few other issuers. So we're kind of on the forefront of, like, the I would say the securitization boom with, with all these, with the non-QM world, um, both on the issuer and the investor side. We've been having a lot of conversation.
2: Okay, great. Thanks. So uh, I actually, I probably, I should have waited until now. But before I, you know, I mentioned my, you know, basic takeaways from this conference, I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, what was your, your general sense of things there?
4: Yeah, I would say um, everyone's excited and uh, understandably so this is a market that hasn't existed for the better part of 10 years um, where uh, everyone's always been waiting for the non-agency market to come back. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that is uh, was a big conversation with, with a lot of people that I was speaking with in the panel that I was on is like, what exactly is not too up, right? Like, so non-agency mortgage market, we've been seeing prime jumbo securitizations from the likes of Redwood and JP Morgan mm-hmm. uh, for a while. But really, I think we've started to see um, this, what we call non-QM. And there's a lot of different, um, whether it's lower credit borrowers, whether it's document impaired borrowers, or whether it's investor properties and so forth. There's a little, a few different buckets of it. Um, but you know, it's, it's growing. Um, and I think everyone's really positive because um, there's there's a lot of opportunity here. I think there's also a lot of uncertainty as well. At the same time, like how big is this market going to be? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the QM patch uh, weighs heavily on, on everyone. So, it's just, there's there's a lot to talk about here. It's not just kind of um, like some of the other markets that it's very much kind of status quo. It's growing right. it's developing. It's new. There's a lot of different ways it could play out. And, of course, that you know, investors want to really try to figure out a view here, and, and, and it's something that they can maybe be involved in for the next couple of years.
2: Well, since you deal with the securitizers, I'm wondering what they tell you about uh, where that growth is going to come from. Is it going to be organic, or is it going to be coming up with new products? Uh, one of the words I kept hearing there, which is uh, can be a good word or a bad word, is innovation. Um, you know, if you thought about that in terms of what was produced 15 years ago it might make you cringe but that was i mean it had to be a word that came up on every single panel at that conference um so i'm just wondering you know how far you think uh issuers are going to push the envelope there or if they are at all
4: well i think it's um you know i think there's a few things that will affect that uh Let's just say if nothing changed, um, and because uh, I, I thought one of the most interesting takeaways that I had was a lot of these issuers were talking about how um, the the backup in rates was actually uh, in, counterintuitively it was it was harmful to non-QM in a way because it, it it took a lot of resources away from the focus of non-QM product into more pure cash out refis. So I really think it's just a it, it's just a matter of focus and, and how some of these bigger issues. Um, really kind of transpire over the next few years, right? So Mm -hmm. um, if the QM patch does expire or there's some sort of transition, but you know that there's going to be this massive supply coming, you know, it's really about how much do people have to push the boundaries just to create product. And I think if there's more product that's naturally going to come their way, Um, I think, uh, you know, it might might relieve some of the pressure to kind of really figure out new crazier things. And um, I think most of the people in the room, I think there's – yeah, there's innovation, there's, you know, talk of products like one-month bank statements or just bank statements in general and, and kind of how that plays out and how much mm-hmm. confidence people should have in that. But I do think the conversation's a lot more open, um, a lot more, you know, I think people, even though they might not be able to participate in certain types of products today, are open to hearing it out, but also looking at it from a way that's way more, um, I would say, just critical in a way, just making sure that it, we're not just opening up the boxes and, you um, And just to blow up volumes,
2: in a sense, like it might have happened. I think that's all all true. I mean, one of the things I found is uh, um, investors who uh, say, you know, large funds, private equity and whatnot, that have not been involved in the trade uh, thus far, uh, they were swarming the place, basically trying to meet up with lenders and perhaps, uh, you know, make an investment and try to uh, make sure that they get some some asset flow their way uh, once the market, uh, you know, takes off even more. Um, yeah. So, well, so there's was- also
4: been a lot of M&A in this space too, mm-hmm. um, which has been interesting over the last few um, months, where there's been some deals and some transactions where originators are being bought and, and so forth. So it, it's 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 kind of. Evolving, There's a lot of things happening on all fronts, not just the loan origination front, not just the investor front, but also on the the corporate side as well.
2: Um, Just getting back to uh, potential growth in the market and the potential size of the market, um, one of the things that the lenders have been telling me for years, and I'm surprised it's still going on, is that uh, it's all about sort of education of the broker community. You have a lot that, uh, I mean, you had mentioned, Perry, that, uh, you know, rate the the rate move this year is uh turned a lot of attention to uh basically conforming refis and whatnot uh but uh there's still um a lot of uh under, under underserved borrowers out there is that what you're hearing as well
4: uh yeah yeah uh that that's for sure and i think that's what really this this product touches upon i think um you know, that's just, I think there's a lot of focus on just really trying to understand the dynamics of of who the borrowers are, why they're taking out these loans, why they might be, you know, taking out a loan that's, um, you know, to 200 basis points through conforming and so forth. So I think everyone's just trying to really um, get educated on what's going on. And I think uh, that's all across the capital structure. Obviously, a lot of the growth is being driven by uh, funds that are you know, putting on these programs and a lot of them are retaining the credit. So I think that speaks volumes just to the confidence that they have in what they're doing uh-huh. um, and, and the credit quality of these loans and also just beyond the borrower, but also the, the loan itself and the characteristics and the LTVs and, and so forth. So um, I really do think this does look very different, but I think a lot of people, especially as you go higher up in the stack um, and you're looking at investment-grade bonds, I think that's an area where Um, Again, if this market's going to grow, you're going to need a lot more participation, you're going to need a lot more funds that are familiar with with this asset class, both from an underwriting standpoint and understand what's going on, and over time, being able to monitor performance closely, because look, there is a lot of scar tissue from people who uh, invested in investment-grade mortgages, so this is something naturally that, um, you know, it's going to take a while to really be able to bring a lot of people back to the space.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, in terms of uh, in- investors, I mean, you're talking about the bond investors being scarred about buying bonds in the past? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, I mean, I didn't see a lot of sort of end buyers of the securities at this conference. It was a lot just about sort of the business of non-QM, I thought. But, um, you know, when you look in the market and uh, where where, uh, deals are getting priced, I mean, it seems that uh, investors are pretty happy with their credit quality and pretty happy with the structures of the deals. Uh, thus far. Of course, that's, in, you know, against a backdrop where you have uh, $15 trillion of uh, bonds in the world with uh, negative yields. And so, you know, you have to buy something, and they're happy to buy something uh, that pays uh, more than your standard agency, MBS, for sure. Um, but uh, what do you think are some of the other risks about uh, non-QM? Um, you know, when I go to a conference like this and everybody is just smiling and happy, I mean, just because I'm a reporter, I have to wonder what's really going on here. I mean, you know, looking for any holes in that in that in that conversation. I mean, have you have you noticed anything oh. else like you know in terms of uh, you know pushback on the non-QM lenders or things that they're doing that are uh, maybe not so uh, not so prudent?
4: Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think I think a lot of those people are smiling just because there's something for them to do. Okay. <laughs> it a long time, right? Sure. So, so that's one thing. Um, I think, um, look, I don't think people, even given the current, like, macro environment and, and negative rates and so forth, I don't think, especially as you get to the top of the capital structure, I don't think, from what I understand, and, and we're not, like, directly engaged in the, the sales process and the roadshows of these transactions, but I'm speaking with the issuers, it's not just, like... You know, there's people buying AAAs A's blindly. Um, even at the AAA level, I think there's a lot of diligence that's being done um, on the issuers, really understanding their underwriting guidelines, really understanding, you know, uh, how their programs work, and uh, and trying to kind of poke holes into um, the types of borrowers that they're that they're chasing, and stock types specifically get the most attention, obviously. Um, so. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very prudent, um, you know, if you just take a snapshot of it today, I think it's a really responsible market at the moment. And I think that you could see that through uh, the, the total delinquency numbers. And I think even those, when people quote total delinquencies, I think they're a little bit skewed based on some more seasoned deals that are not necessarily kind of this newer like the production that's been going on for the last you know year and a half, two years. So I think in, if again, if we're just taking a snapshot of today, I think it's mm-hmm. a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty bulletproof market. And in, in terms of, if you look at the credit quality and you look at the uh, loan quality, um, you know, where LTVs are at, I think the risk is just, you know, there's a lot of people diving into it. As you saw, there was a lot of people that was less of an investor conference, more of kind of like a originator and, an issuer conference. And, uh, there's a lot of people that are diving into it. And I think things will get more competitive. And naturally, when things get more competitive, the box starts to widen a little bit, Um, you know, and that's just, you know, how responsible is the market two years from now, three years from now? I don't think it's something that, you know, you get comfortable with today and then you're just good for the next few years and you keep buying and you don't ask any more questions. So that's why kind of um, what we bring to the table in terms of having all the performance data uh, in one place and really accessible to anyone, not just people who've set up like the, the whole million dollar analytical infrastructure over the last 20 years that they've used for mortgages, but even for those AAA guys to really be able to hold people accountable and understand how performance in this space is evolving. Um, how uh, origination characteristics are evolving year over year, vintage over vintage, and so that's the case that we're making with all the issuers and also with all the investors. Um, again, because this this buyer base that exists just today is not going to be able to support the size of the market that we're predicting three years from now. You know, there's got to be a lot of new people that come into the space um, to to fulfill those markets, the volumes, if it does become a hundred billion plus billion dollar a year market. That's
2: right. I mean, uh, as as of now, there's certainly plenty of uh demand to buy these these deals uh you know however we have done some reporting on uh you know some holdouts uh in, in non agency some large investment companies that uh still say they refuse to buy new deals because uh the reps and warrants just aren't as uh as hardy as they as they want them to be but um you know, I, there's. Uh, I mean, I know that, uh, for instance, Pimco has. You know, they've been out. Well, they were out years ago talking about uh, how the reps and warrants are just terrible on new deals and how they want some changes, like a deal agent to, uh, you know, enforce the enforce the uh, the contracts and whatnot. But uh, you know, even now they're stepping into in, into these uh, some non-QM deals, and as a matter of fact, they're an issuer too, uh, for that matter. So you know, things will change uh, incrementally. In that regard so anyway yeah. i think um, i don't know if you had anything else to add about the conference but uh, i think we're pretty close to wrapping up right diana
0: i think so um thank you this was uh, fascinating and hopefully one of these days you'll get to meet perry in person i know we've been talking back and forth about that for a while um well, <laughs> thank you all so much yizhou perry and d and al and our producer uh, anthony phillips for making this episode happen and i will see you all next time Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thanks,
0: guys. Thanks for listening to ABS In Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.